Good morning. Great, great to be here again together. So how is your, your reading of Isaiah going? Well, we've been asked, been encouraged to, to read through the book and uh, get familiar with it. How's it going? Are you struggling? Yeah, I know. Are you struggling to, to find the relevance uh, in what you're reading in, in, in your life? Uh, are you struggling to find an application to put it into your life? Wondering, wondering if you're, if you're struggling. It's always good to, uh, to have audience participation. Risky, it's risky, but we're going to do that now. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Just shout out the answer. What is the prophet? A little bit louder, please. What is a prophet? <laughs> All right. So, I'll tell you what a prophet is. If you if you're looking at uh, the prophets that we're looking at in the Old Testament, a prophet is a person. And this is very important. Chosen by God. You may think that's uh, very rudimentary, Raph, but that's really important because you know there are kings. In the, in, in the Old Testament. And you can become a king because of, of hereditary reasons. You know, your dad was a king. You become a king. It doesn't happen like that with a prophet. Your dad's a prophet. Bad luck. It doesn't mean you become a prophet. Chosen by God. Directly, he pointed and said, you will be my prophet. That's very important. A prophet is also someone who, who, who speaks for God. Oh, Raph, mate, we, we, you know, rocket science here. But that's really important because and some of the older people here would recognise this term. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. That's really important because, you see, God established this method of communication right back in Exodus where God gave a message and he said, I want you to speak these very words to whoever the message was directed to. And he carries it on right through the Old Testament. Finishing up with John the Baptist that we read of in the New Testament. If you get a chance, have a look at Exodus 4. It's where it starts. So a prophet is a person chosen by God to speak for God and primarily, I reckon, about 98% of the time to speak to God's people. Okay. What have you been doing all week, Raph? You know, this is so basic. The brothers and sisters... Let me tell you something. It's very important, these three things. Very, very important. You know, when, when a prophet spoke, it, it, when you look at the, new, the Old Testament, the bulk of the, the messages are not good. If you saw a prophet coming into your town, man, it wasn't going to be a good time. But he came with the words of God, the very words of God is what, it's, what it says. And in, and in 98% of the time, 
It was to the people of God. There's one, one case, one, one very notable case in the book of Jonah, where it was, uh, the message was for the people of Nineveh who were Assyrians. But that's about the only one that I could really come up with that was, it was uh, of any major consequence. So the question is, of what use is it reading about fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament? I mean, brothers and sisters, most of the stuff that you read in the books of the prophets has already happened. The bulk of it has happened. Already happened. I mean, the book of Isaiah, for example, was written in 760 BC, 2,780 years ago. Most of the things that in, in the book of Isaiah have happened. And a lot of the future events that are mentioned in the books of the prophets are related to the kingdom promises made to the Jews, the people of God in the Old Testament. So what's the benefit of you and me reading the book of Isaiah and the prophets? What's the benefit? Where's the blessing? I know I don't look 62 and a half, but um, for a long, 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 long time as a Christian, I have struggled with the books of the prophets. I mean, really, when you look at them, when you read through them, they're hard to grasp and understand and to put into different places. That's why there's so much controversy among scholars about these books. It's a struggle, we've got to admit it. And and I, I struggle to understand parts of it. I struggle to appreciate what's being said and I struggle to apply it to my life as I read through them. And, you know, the thing you should do, you know, Josh, the thing you should do is go and see an elder in your church if you're having those issues. And as a young Christian, that's what I did. I was blessed to to go to a small church in East Coburg who had some great men of God, great teachers of the word of God. And so I went to them. I said, I'm struggling with this. No, Raph, don't worry. It's it's mainly historical. Mainly historical, Raph. Don't don't stress about it. Don't worry about it too much. The consequence of that attitude is that Most people, most Christians, I was talking to a lady yesterday, she rang me. How are you going, Ralph? We're chatting. What are you doing? I told her what I was doing. Oh, she says, Isaiah, you know, we, and she's a, she's much older than me. And and she says, you don't hear about teaching on the prophets very much in churches today. And you don't. Because it's, it's really hard work. To our detriment, brothers and sisters, to our detriment. I met a man, I was told about this place uh, in, in Reservoir called the European Christian Bookshop. Now, if you lived in the northern suburbs, there was nowhere to go to get a Christian book. You had to tramp all the way to Kurong or to, uh, to Kilsyth when uh, word was out there. It's a long way from Coburg to Kilsyth. A long way from Montmorency to Kilsyth, I know that because I've been travelling that for the last six weeks. 
But there was a man called Ron Chibi who, who in a, in a house, in a garage, he, he, he provided Christian books for Christians in the northern suburbs. And, uh, you know, I used to frequent that little garage quite a lot. Spent heaps of money in that bookshop, heaps of it. And every now and again he would say, Raph, here's a good book. And I didn't even question him. I just borrowed, I bought, I bought it, took it home, put it on my shelf, read it when I had a chance. One day, in my late 40s, I went in and he said, Raph, 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 here's a great commentator. You'll enjoy this. Take it home. And he, he knew, Ron knew that I loved the, the, uh, the, the Gospel of John. And so he, he gives me this, this book. It's about this thick on the Gospel of John. So I started to read through it. This commentator is brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and I enjoyed it. So I got his book on Romans, which is not a book, it's four volumes. And so I started to get those books. They're all on my shelf at home. If you need to have a borrow of them, come around. I'm happy to lend them to you. But one day I was reading through the, the Gospel of John, and, it, and, and this commentator referenced something in the Old Testament in one of the prophet, prophetic books. And you know, this is not a, nothing's a coincidence with a Christian and his relationship with God, but, but at the bottom of the footnote he says, if you want a further explanation about this, have a look at my commentary on the minor prophets to get a fuller explanation. I looked at that. And I looked at it. And for some reason, I thought, maybe I should, um, have a look at what he has to say about the prophets. I mean, everything else I've written, I've read that he's written is great. So I went to Ron Tibby. Ron, have you got, no, I haven't got it, but I'll get it for you. And he did. He got me a two volume thing on the minor prophets. So I'm a weird bloke. I read introductions to books. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but I do. So I got the book, the, the first volume of this, uh, commentary opened it up to the introduction and, and, and this commentator explains how you should read the books of the prophets and why. I'm going to share that with you today because it was absolute blessing and revelation to me. Now when I read the books of the prophets, it's a completely different experience for me. A new insight in the reading of the books of the Bible and this is what he said in his introduction. It was as if it was a message for me. He said, don't be taken up with the eschatology of the prophetic books. Now, that means, you know, people get talk, uh, caught up with the final events, the ultimate destiny of humanity, end times, big subject, optimism and, and pessimism of future events. They're worried about the timeline, when things are going to happen in the future. This man said, don't get caught up with that. And brothers and sisters, that's great advice. You know, we get caught up with some of these things and it distracts us from important things. And this man said, instead, instead of doing that, not that you shouldn't do any of that because those things are important, but instead of getting distracted and focusing all of your attention on those sort of things. He said, instead, have a look at what God is saying. 
Have a look at what God is saying to his people, kindly. Have a look at what God is saying about his people, you and me. Have a look about, have, have a, have a, have a look at how God is feeling. How God, his attitude to things. God's emotions. You know, you know God has emotions? We tend to think that God is this power up there and he doesn't feel. Brothers and sisters, made in the image of God. Of course he has feelings and emotions. Have a look, he said, have a look at God's expectation of his people, Josh. Now, that's a revelation to me. I don't know about you guys, but I thought I never thought about the books of the prophets looking at them like that. Never thought about it. I was the eschatology bracket, you know, looking for the future events, figuring out where the timeline, where it is and what's happening and what does it mean and who's going to be, you know, the beast and all that. So I took this man's advice and started to read through the minor prophets like that. Here's another question for you. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. When you read Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, with this attitude, with this uh, viewpoint, looking at it through this lens that I just explained to you, you discover it's not Jeremiah that's weeping. It's God. It's God that's weeping. And Carolyn, when you go and read the book of Hosea next time you read it, if you look at it like this, you realise that it's God who has the adulterous wife. It's God whose wife's a harlot. It's God who has to take that, that woman back and forgive her and love her. That that gives you a different perspective on the books of the prophets. Now, in light of that, in light of what we've just learned, let's have a look at chapter 5 of Isaiah. In in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it tells us there's a song here. A song, and some commentators say it's a parable. And brothers and sisters, if you, if you have a think about what you've just read in chapter five, there's a very, very similar story or parable in Matthew chapter one, uh, chapter 21 verse 40. The parable of the tenants that the Lord gives. Very, very similar. There's a reason for that. And, you know, it's a good way to, to introduce uh, uh, a, a very unpalatable or, or controversial or unpopular subject is to give people a bit of a story, a parable, a joke maybe. Well, here is I was using a song. Because, brothers and sisters, chapter 5 is unpalatable. It really is. If you're listening, if this is the message that God has for you, it's not going to be a pleasant message. It's going to be confronting. It's going to be hard-hitting. That's what it is. 
So very quickly, what does it say there? In verses 1 and 2, we discover there's a singer. The singer is Isaiah. The mouthpiece of God. So here we have Isaiah is going to sing a, a, a song to the nation of Israel. The vineyard it refers to is Israel. So we have a singer singing to Israel, God's people. This chapter is addressed to God's people. And so we have, we have the desire of this, this owner of the vineyard and his desire is that he would, he would have a vineyard that he could enjoy, take pleasure in, you know, get a few grapes growing, give him a bit of a squeeze, make some wine, sit back, relax and enjoy. That's the desire of the, of the owner of the vineyard. And then we have, we have the efforts of this, this owner. He, he goes, he goes and he uh, checks out a suitable place to plant his vineyard. You know, he made sure that it was, that it was on the right side of the hill so the grapes would get enough, uh, enough sunshine and there was water nearby, all that sort of thing. He, he says there that he, that he, that he spied out a suitable place that was fertile and a great place to grow his vineyard. He also cleared the land. He ploughed it. Uh, he prepared it. He, 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 he made sure there was a trench for to bring the water, all that sort of thing. So there was lots of preparation. And it says there that he planted the choicest vines. That's important. The choicest vines. God is very particular as to what he says to his people. So the words are important. I was taught that very young in my Christian experience. The choice is fine. I know there's some very keen gardeners here. So, so here's a question. If, if, if I asked you what is the, the choice or the best uh, passion fruit vine, what would it be? Nelly Kelly. Thank you very much. Exactly. Good on you, Elizabeth. What about if I asked uh, what sort of tomatoes should I plant next year? Gross Lissies, Romas, Apollo, you know? You know, you know the ones that are really good. And what about a lemon tree? What's the best lemon tree you could plant in your backyard? Maybe a Lisbon lemon? They're the real lemon. I mean, you can get the fruit salad ones, but it'll be sweeter. So, so there are, there are choice plants that produce really good fruit, reliable, robust, guaranteed of success. And this is what the, the owner of the vineyard sought out, sourced out, and planted the choice vines. Very important that we note that. And then the owner has an expectation. He has a watchtower, he builds a watchtower, puts a hedge around it to protect it because he knows it's valuable, what he's just done. He puts a wine press actually in the vineyard because, you know, fertile soil, great spot, well prepared, choice vines, I'm going to get a great harvest. So I'm going to put a wine wine press here and we're going to make wine. Heaps of it. And that's what he had. He had this expectation. Verse 2 it says, looking for a crop of good grapes. It's very disappointing, isn't it, Elizabeth, when you plant and you fertilise and you 
look out for weeds. You put your snake pallet, snail pallets down. And you, you know, you, my wife's been doing that lately. I don't know what's happened to her, but she's into gardening all, all of a sudden after 43 years. Anyway, I can say that because she's not here now. So you, you have this expectation, don't you, after putting all that work and effort in of a good result. Verse, verse uh, 2 there says, but it yielded only bad fruit. In some translations, wild grapes, but the NIV decided to say bad fruit because that's important because you can't eat wild grapes. Well, wild grapes in, in those areas, they're inedible, right? Not poisonous, but you just couldn't eat them. Now, it's worse, you know, to get bad fruit. It's worse than no fruit. You realise that, don't you? Because because in Luke chapter 13, there's a parable there as well with a bloke who's got a vineyard, and he thought, you know, you know it would be really good with a glass of vino? Some figs. So he plants himself a fig tree, and he nurtured it, and, and, and he looked at it, and it grew to maturity and beautiful green leaves and everything, but there were no figs. And there were no figs the next year, Fiona. And Brian, the, the year after, still no figs. So the owner's thinking, I've got a really sharp axe here. I'm going to chop this tree down. So as he's going off to, to chop this tree down, the husbandman, which means like the manager of, or the, the, the head gardener of the vineyard, says, oh! He says, um, what are you doing? He says, oh, I chopped the tree, no fruit. He says, well, look, look. It's a great tree, looking healthy and everything. Let's let's give it one more year and we'll we'll dig around the roots and everything, put a bit of blood and bone or whatever, you know, and, and see what happens next year. And the owner says, okay, we'll give it another year. That's a tree with no fruit. That's also a parable by the Lord. But bad fruit, what's bad fruit? Now, I don't have any fruit. I've only got one fruit tree at home. It's a lemon tree, so it's not really relevant. But have you ever bought bad fruit from the greengrocer? I love white peaches, white peaches. Love them. I'm very particular. I make sure that they feel good and they look good and they're the right size and everything. You take them home, you leave them in the bowl for a few days so they ripen up. And then you get one and you get the really sharp knife and you cut to the, to the pip and you open it up and it's brown all the way through. And you can't eat it. It's disgusting. I've tried it. Because peaches, white peaches are $6 a kilo at the moment. They're not cheap. Bad fruit. You cannot eat it. You can't eat it. So here's this fruit. Looks great from the outside on the tree, you know, wherever. Looks really good. And you go to pick it. That's why it's worse. When there's bad fruit, the expectation's higher, isn't it, Dandy? There's no, no satisfaction. And here we have an interesting turn in this, uh, this song because all of a sudden it's no longer the singer, it's actually the owner. The owner is saying to, to, in verse 3, says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done? This is God speaking to his people. What more could I have done? 
Well, it's not really a rhetorical question, but you notice that there's no reply. You'll notice that this sort of thing happens quite a lot in the, in the Bible, where questions are asked either by God, the prophet, or Jesus. And when the people who are asked the question think about the answer, it becomes self-condemnation. They condemn themselves when they think about the answer, even if you don't say it. And the classic example of that is David and Nathan the prophet. Remember that story? Samuel chapter 2, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan comes and tells David about, you know, there was this bloke, he had heaps of sheep, and he, and the next door neighbour, he had the one little sheep, and he loved that sheep, and he was a pet and everything, and this man with a lot of sheep, he, 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 he had a friend come over, and he thought, you know, I don't want to kill him, I'm going to kill that man's little sheep, I'm going to use that, I'm going to roast it, have a nice time, you know. David was incensed at the injustice. And this man should be severely punished. David condemned himself. And that's what happened to him. That's what happened to him. I want you to look at verses 5 and 6, and I'm just going to read them out to you again. Have a look at all the personal pronouns. God is speaking here. What more could I have done? Now I will tell, now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. It's his vineyard. He planted it. He had an expectation for it. You know, a lot of people think God's a bit harsh sometimes when you talk about judgment. It's his vineyard. Put all the effort in. All the expense. Tended it, cared for it. I will take away, I will take away its hedge, and it will it will be destroyed. I will break down the wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. I will condemn the clouds, not terrain. And just in case you're not sure about who the Lord's referring to here, he goes on in verse seven. He says, "The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, His people." A lot of times we think, eh, you know, the sinners out there, all the unbelievers, all the crims, you know, the drug addicts and the drug dealers, they deserve God's judgment. The prophets mainly spoke to God's people. And it clearly identifies who God is going to do this to and why as you read through the rest of the chapter. And as we looked at our introduction in, 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 in Isaiah, it's for a particular people at a particular time and so on. Now, I don't have time to go over those things, but because I need to look at these next verses, the six woes. The six woes, very important. And, and, and the six woes identify the bad fruit or the wild, wild grace. What was it of the, that fruit that was made of bad? What was it that was bad? Why could not it have been eaten? Why was it unproductive? What were the things? 
And so with the woes, a woe is like, like a condemnation, a judgment or a curse. All those things can be uh, attributed to the, the term woe. And so we have the six woes being explained uh, in the next few verses. And again, once again, if you go to Matthew chapter 23, you'll discover the Lord speaking to his people, the nation of Israel, and he, and he, and he enumerates seven woes to the religious leaders there. Very interesting how God uses the same methods right through the scriptures. And that's not going to change, brothers and sisters. It's not going to change. So the first woe, chapter uh, verse 8, the first woe is, Woe unto you who add to house and join fields. That's talking about covetousness, wanting more and more wealth, more possessions, more greed, not satisfied, not satisfied with what God, what God has provided for you. God's people here, brothers and sisters. Not the unsaved. Wealth is good. Greed is good. That, that's okay for society to say that, but it shouldn't be the attitude of the people of God. Unfortunately, here in this reading, it has permeated into the society of the people of God. And when you look at church history, similar thing has happened. The attitudes of society creep in, take take hold. Maybe even this church today. Verses 11 to 17 talk about drunkenness and parties and entertainment, addictions to alcohol and various things. And, and really what that's saying there, brothers and sisters, is that, that, that the, the, the people of God in this time had lack of self-control. That's one of the big things, isn't it, in the New Testament, that the, the people of God need to learn, take on as a characteristic, as a fruit of the spirit, self-control. And the prevalence then and in history and even today of the reliance on alcohol for a coping mechanism and and pleasure-seeking as it is described in this passage as well. Verses 18 and 19 talks about the, the next woe, I've got to flip over the page here, hang on. Uh, the next woe is, Woe to those who draw along along with uh, cords of deceit, wickedness, as with uh, cart ropes, to those uh, who say, Let God hurry, let him hasten his work, so that we may see, let it approach. And 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 it goes on and talks about the the, the carelessness of the people of God in the way in which they live, their daily living. Why, why, why would God be bothered with that? Why would be God concerned about that? Because it makes us look as if we're hypocrites, and 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 we we defy God in the way in which we live. How often do people enjoy pointing out the faults of Christians? So it is important. It is important. 
Verse, uh, verse 21, uh, the woe there is to those who, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. That's pride. It's been mentioned already this morning. Pride. Uh, we tend to think that we know better than God. I know what God says about that, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to live like this. I'm going to get involved in, in that particular activity. Attitude, attitude in uh, many churches today is that instead of accepting the word of God, following the word of God, submitting to the word of God, what? We argue with it. We defy it. It happened then. It's happening now. And you know, this is upsetting God. These, th- these things are actually upsetting God. It's distressing God. It's causing him grief. In verses 22 to 25 is the last woe. And, and, and when you read through that, it, it's, it's quite startling because it's mainly, it's mainly uh, directed to the leaders of, of, the, of the nation of Israel. And, and instead of godly wisdom and godly administration and godly justice being, being, you know, dealt, uh, met out to, to the society, they get, they get pleasure in, in, in partying and using that power to lord it over the people and, and overlooking, overlooking and sanctioning injustice because of bribery, to, to corruption, all those things. And God looks down at his people at this time. He looks down and he takes into account all that's happened. His vineyard. And we didn't read this verse because I'd like to stress it myself. Verse 25. Here's what it says. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. You need to just take a moment to think about that little sentence. The Lord's angry. God is angry. Now, I, 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 I can appreciate God looking onto the, onto the earth and seeing mankind and some of the stuff that man's doing. I can understand, I can appreciate God being angry at some of those things. The human trafficking. The enslaving of people with drugs and all sort, you know, all murder, the violence. But that's not what's happening here. God is looking into his vineyard. God's looking at his people and he's angry. Can you appreciate that? And his anger burns against his people. The rest of the chapter talks about or gives an explanation and details on how God will judge his people in this instance. Which is interesting, but really doesn't have a lot of relevance to you and me today. So the question is, the question we should ask now, and my time's gone, is what is the application for me now? In Montmorency, 
I think there's three things we can take away from this uh, this morning. The first one is what we see in this chapter is that God has provided for us, his people, an environment for fruitfulness, right? An environment for fruitfulness. We Not long ago we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, which is the expectation of the of the Lord from his people. You were given, given the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and there's an expectation for it to bear fruit. Now it's interesting that in Luke 19 verse 13 it talks about the parable of ten talents and, and the thing that comes across there is that the, the servant of the master should be occupied in the master's service until the master returns. Occupy until I come back. You can read that for yourself in verse 13. The second thing is God has always and will always judge his people. We all know about the great white throne judgment. That's for all the sinners and they deserve it. Now what about the judgment seat of Christ? That's where the believers will be judged. And, you know, God has, right from Genesis, right from Genesis, God has judged his people. Genesis, the Garden of Eden, Exodus, the people of God, right through And it's, it, 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 it culminates in Revelation. Luke 16, again, have a look at 16, the, the parable of the, of, of the, uh, the shrewd manager being judged for service and faithfulness. And the third and final thing that uh, you can take home with is that God has always and still does provide his people ample opportunity and time to repent of any disobedience, uh, sinful behaviour, willful behaviour, you see, God didn't just uh, say, oh, I'm happy, I'm sick of this, I'm going to wipe out this vineyard. No, the people had ample opportunity, always have. God is fair. God is just. He would prefer people to repent. I love, I love reading the story of Jonah. And you know what I love? Not the big fish, no, no, no. I, I, I love Jonah's attitude. I don't want to tell those Ninevites about your, what you're going to do, because they'll repent and you'll forgive them. I don't want that. I want them to... So- That's the heart of God, that none should perish, but all come to repentance, especially his people, especially his people. God never took pleasure in judging his people. He told them they're going to be exiled. sons and daughters would be enslaved took no pleasure in that can I leave you with one thing this last thing there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah technically we've done five I'm good at maths it's 61 to go Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible will you see the full range of God's emotions, God's attitude, or God's feelings. You know? If you want to get to know what God is like, there's nowhere else you'll find that 
other than the books of the prophets. God just pours out his feelings and emotions and his heart in those books. And if you want to know what God is thinking, brothers and sisters, read the books of the prophets. Thanks.